Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. We're shaking, or I should say stirring, things up this week with a slight tweak to our regular programming. And by that, I mean we're paying a revisit to one of our earliest recorded episodes, The Martini, with John Clark Gennetti of New Haven's 116 Grand. Now, there's a good reason for this. I've been thinking about The Martini a lot recently. No change there. But I've specifically been considering how much has changed over the past year alone since we recorded that episode on the martini front. Regular listeners will know full well my love of this drink, and more than once I've expressed cynicism surrounding this whole supposed renaissance that's happening. My main gripe with that idea is, how can something so perfect, so timeless, ever go in or out of fashion? The martini exists. It persists. And for as long as we have a healthy supply of gin and dry vermouth, that will always be the case. It is undoubtable, though, that the martini has reached the point where the old-fashioned was, say, 10, 15 years ago. Both of these cocktails are so well-known and so simple in their composition, we should be able to expect any respectable bar to make them. Therefore, what's the point of putting it on the menu? But just as happened with the old-fashioned, and as this martini movement has gained steam, it's become a necessity for bars to not only add the drink to the menu, but to offer a proprietary riff. And this is where things can get a little dicey for purists. Not a week goes by when I don't encounter an egregious slight against this drink via riffs and ingredients like MSG or dirty pasta water. Don't even get me started on that one. On the other hand, I do love when a bar plants a stake in the ground and says, this is our martini. It's gin and vermouth, maybe some bitters. This is our preferred combination of brands, our ideal ratio. It all raises the question of what exactly the martini is. Is it a cocktail or is it a whole category of cocktails? And at what point do we stray too far from the drink's soul and identity? Food for thought? I hope so, listener. Because these are the kind of topics we dissect today with JCG during the martini recording. It's the Cocktail College Podcast. It's brought to you by the fine folks, the Vine Pair Podcast Network. John Clark Gennetti, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And I mean, I'm I'm excited about this one. I'm I'm a huge martini fan, so this this is a big episode for me, and I really can't wait to to kind of break down the cocktail with you. Um, you know, all cocktails start with a great story, so I wanna I wanna kind of start by looking at that with you, John. And 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 listen, you know, cocktail history is documented by people who kind of they enjoy a liquid libation. They that you know they don't let facts get in the way of a good tale. So can, can you tell us what are kind of some of the most recognized theories behind the genesis of the martini, our subject today, and what, what's the one that you kind of uh, go with that you believe? Uh, I will tell you the truth. Of all the uh, sort of commonly um, 
dispensed versions, I, I believe almost none of them. I think this is one of the drinks that is just so ubiquitous and so um, sort of fraught with differences and sort of bandied about for years on bar stools, at tables, at restaurants that everybody's heard of in, you know, epicenters of, of the world. Um, I think there's almost too much motivation by interested parties to ever settle on one true beginning for the martini. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, it's just gotta have, it's, it, it can't, it can't be, it can't be one. It cannot be one. I mean, we can't, you know, we can't agree on whether or not we've been visited by aliens and that <laughs> seems to be a pretty straightforward one. So I don't know if we're ever going to come up with, um, who had the brilliant idea to put gin, vermouth and a lemon peel together to make, um, what I would call the most classic, most delicious drink ever. And I mean, I think it is an otherworldly cocktail is the fact that if I go into my phone and try and text you and I search for the cocktail emoji and the martini glass comes up, is that a sign that this is the most iconic cocktail in the world? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, it definitely <laughs> You're hesitant there. Well, as a, I am, I, I'm not an avid emoji user i have three or four um and i i'm pretty sure there's a there's an emoji translator and i'm very sure that i'm using them wrong if i was to put <laughs> that in there um but i think that that's i i think that that is certainly it certainly points to the fact that that is that's the the sort of most um thought of and i mean part of that is just because of like the sort of like physical stature of the drink, mm-hmm. right? It, it's got its own glass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once I think you get to that, um, that's sort of a point. It's like, you know, when you, when you're just going by your first name. Yeah. Madonna share. There you go. Martini. Martini. And, uh, you know, bond, James bond, a kind of nice seg there. So, uh, you know, building upon that iconic status, you do have this kind of, this conversation that I think within the bar world is not even an argument anymore, you know, shaken versus stirred. And I think that's even outside of the bar world, right? Like most people these days, I think, know that that is an error, you know, the whole shaken, not stirred. Um, but I'm not sure that everyone knows why that is. So let's let's start by breaking that down. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I tend to see some charm in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that it's like, uh, I I know, I don't think it was intentional. You know, I I don't, I don't think Ian Fleming said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sew this little mistake into the rug uh, because everything else is so perfect. Mm. Um, Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, I think as a, as a, a Bond fan, not a super fan, but a fan, I think one of the cool things that we're seeing in some of the more recent Bonds is that he's um, fallible. And he's been a, made to be a little more human. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're showing him a little bit older. And this is somebody who could absolutely just have gone on um, in this sort of, you know, stunted. You know, he, he could have been what? what uh, in between 35 and 50 forever. Right. <laughs> he would never. And he would never have to break down. You know, the world sort of like 
ages around him and he's, you know, the Dorian Gray. He's timeless. Know, spy. He's timeless. He could just, you know, he, he's, he's a character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the sort of great things about Bond. Um, I, as we, you know, briefly touched on a few minutes ago, there is no, there is no reasonable argument to be shaking vermouth. Mm-hmm. Sort of ever. So, you know, I, I wonder if I wonder if the statement is true that that pretty much everyone knows. I think everyone um, has heard. You know, I don't think they're really believers. I am a, a huge advocate of a martini being three ingredients, and three ingredients is all. I don't think that olives belong in it. I don't mm-hmm. think that vodka belongs in it. I certainly don't think that. Um, espresso or peanut butter belong in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also (laughs) not so in love with myself that I'm unwilling to concede that there is just going to be some degree of the population that is everything that comes in a V-shaped glass with a stem is going to be a martini. And that's Mm -hmm. just, that's what we're going to do with that. So I'm sure there's, there's somebody with a wall of, uh, you know, bond posters and um, collectibles that is going to shake their martini, gosh darn it, no matter what you say to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that the other sort of interesting part about the sort of the, the bond legacy is that he wasn't, he, that, that's the most, um, that's sort of the most understood and agreed on and ordered drink by bond. But, you know, throughout the years, he has, he has segued, um, and he's, you know, jagged and, you know, he's had some Vespers, you know, yeah. and, you know, he, he's, he, he's, he, you know, he's, he's getting a little more, uh, he's getting a little less uptight. And, you know, as the advertisers come in, he's partial to a Heineken these days and whatnot. But I, I just, I, I was hoping we can rewrite just, just very briefly. You, you, you mentioned there that vermouth should never be shaken in your opinion. Can you just tell no. us why that is? Um, you know, it's, I think it's actually very striking, too, that this comes with the Bond conversation, mm-hmm. because I, for me, principally, it's a matter of looks. Mm-hmm. So um, I subscribe very uh, sort of profoundly to all of the senses should be engaged when enjoying a drink or food. Um, that's that's why I think that the the lemon twist is so important to the martini because that's really, you know, when you and I, I think I, I've done this with you when when that glass rises to your face mm-hmm. before it even gets near your nose, that lemon it, it just for me serves to wake up the senses and say you know get ready for something delicious and by the mm-hmm. same extension when you're shaking wine which is what vermouth is, um, it doesn't look very good. And a martini should always be crystal clear. Um, it should almost look innocent. It should look like spring water. There mm-hmm. should be that, that sort of uh, wink of vermouth on, on the, when, you, when you look at it. Um, and as somebody who's been staring at beverage alcohol for 20 years, um, sometimes my younger employees are are struck when um i can tell that they've added a little bit of vodka into mm-hmm. their soda just by the viscosity and <laughs> i might be taking things too far um 
when I analyze a drink, but nine out of nine and a half out of 10 times, the drink I'm analyzing is um, either one that I'm going to drink or one that I'm going to serve. Mm-hmm. So I think taking that editing eye to it is important. And mm-hmm. much like you wouldn't, you know, put your Chateauneuf de Pop on a, you know, paint mixer before you drank it, you shouldn't be <laughs> shaking well, your bo- right? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that they're doing it in succession, but um, yeah, you shouldn't be, of course. You shouldn't be. No, you and it's just, be. and it's got, it's just, there's no, there's no point to it. You're not trying to aerate the drink. You're not trying to introduce citrus to the drink. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, a, it, especially when, you know, being enjoyed by a guy who's, you know, wearing an Omega, a Brioni suit and packing a Walther. He, <laughs> you know, even just the, the act of it, like, you know, let's, let's keep this a little bit, you know, just between us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no shaking, no shaking. And so I think, you know, yeah, I was probably wrong earlier in saying that everyone knows not to shake, but I, I, I think we've kind of put that to bed as to why we shouldn't be doing it. Um, I wonder whether a more interesting conversation to have, because this cocktail is going to be very different to most of the ones that we're exploring in this series in that, you know, there is no one fixed recipe. The martini is so personal, which is, which is what I love about it personally. Um, so I find maybe the more interesting conversation to be like the the ratios, right? And and again, like there's this amazing tie into history there. So can you tell us about some of the um, the kind of more recognized ratios? Uh, maybe some of them have a cool backstory. And what's the one that you personally go for yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that the ratios are, you know, they're. I think they're much more up for debate. Um, than anything regarding, you know, shaking and stirring. And mm-hmm. as the, the person who is, you know, stomping my feet and lighting a match over the proper way to make this, I always have to concede that the martini that I serve technically is a gin French because the ratio has more vermouth than would be sort of counted on by your average uh, martini and viber. Mm-hmm. Um, that said... You know, I think, I think the only responsible way to sort of understand the martini and really be a student of it is to investigate what the fans have to say about the drink. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you were, if the martini were a baseball player and being inducted into the Hall of Fame, um, you know, there are stats right? You're, you're standing on this stage because, you know, you hit this many home runs, uh, you know, you committed this many errors. And um, for that, you know, you would get a reason to stand on the stage. But there's going to be something written on the plaque that's going to be hung on the wall mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a sort of, you know, that, that those numbers got you the right to have. And I think that that's really where their debate comes in with the martini because, you know, gin vermouth, um, you know, you can, you know, shaking it will not get you onto the stage, right? There and uh, off brands will not get you onto the stage. Maybe, you know, sort of no attention paid to, um, you know, ingredient quality and, uh, you know, adding something, you know, the, the, the apple martini is never going to be part of the, um, cocktail hall of fame. 
But those once those attributes are satisfied that get you onto the stage, it's really about what gets written on the plaque. And I think that that, um, whether it be baseball or martinis, inherently goes back to the fans. And mm-hmm. I think that some of the best literature that's been written about the martini is always talking about, you know, there is the there are the senses, you know, that, again, the smelling of the lemon, the fact that it needs to be, you know, ice cold. And, but what happens afterwards is where I always sort of find the poetry. Um, and, you know, how, how that gets written about in literature, um, in the class that I teach at Yale College with Dr. Jessica Spector, when we talk about the martini, the title of that day's course is that the martini is civilized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I like to read from The Sun Also Rises. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hemingway is choosing martinis to set a mood. And, you know, the, the, the way that the drinks are described, it doesn't need to be, you know, they're, they're talking about um, it's good. Isn't it a nice bar? You could be hoisting a Heineken. You know, you could have a nice cold beer. But the fact that they're having martinis is in there to set the understanding by Hemingway of what's trying to be achieved by both parties sitting there. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, as you said, the martini is going to be different than anything else that gets discussed on your on your show. But it's exactly for that, you know, when the martini is in a book or on TV, and I hate to keep going back to Bond, but, you know, I've made this case in the class. Why is Bond drinking a martini? And my, um, my, my, my theory is that he needs to be civilized because he's a murderer. He is a mass murderer. He's an assassin. He's probably killed more people than any of the, you know, horror villains, you know, the, the Freddy Kruegers mm-hmm. bonds got them beat by, you know, the thousands. So how do you take, how do you take this, um, this basically horrible person and temper him into some, somebody who's, you know, doing it for the honor of the, of the, the sovereignty, you know, mm-hmm. and, Everything else has to be that, you know, he has to be well-dressed. He has to have an Aston Martin. And -hmm. when you consider the drink, he has to have a martini. Mm -hmm. And, and so at the beginning there, you you talked about your preferred serve almost being like, uh, I think gin French, you said, so, so in terms of technical, technical build, what what are we looking at there? Um, Gin to vermouth. Um, And I guess on top of that, is is the martini given given how we're speaking about this being a very personal drink? Do do you actually have a standard serve at your bar that you're teaching your bartenders that you're saying, okay, you know, unless someone says anything, this is the way that we're going to serve them? Yeah, the so we you know we have a menu, and mm-hmm. when somebody orders a martini, as you said, it's a it's a personal drink. Mm-hmm. Um, the first question that's asked is, do you want our martini? Or would you like something else? Um, in the case that they're ordering from the menu, and that's, of course, what I prefer because I like them to, you know, 
essentially be buying what we're selling. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the thing that also figures into that is the brands. So, you know, when you, if you were to look up the gin French, you're going to get three parts, um, gin to two parts vermouth. Now there's mm-hmm. nothing in there that, um, you know, def- calls for a brand. Um, and as we know, gins and vermouths both can taste very different. And this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons that I felt comfortable calling ours the martini because I thought that the Plymouth gin that we use and the Boissier dry vermouth that we use and the lemon twist conveyed more of a martini taste and feel. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the origin of this is so dubious that, you know, we'll never, we'll never get there. Um, but sort of, again, reading through, you know, countless great books about the drink, tasting that, and honestly, the way it affected myself and the other people that were tasting it, I said, yeah, this is, this is the martini that we want to sell. This is mm-hmm. how, um, th- this is what we've been reading about. This is the feeling. This is the mm-hmm. taste. Um, this is the look, this is the smell, this is mm-hmm. a martini. Um, and you know, whether it be again, you know, call it what you like, but not accounting for those brands. Um, it, it's really, it's really hard to qualify that, you know, if we were to make this with something with a much more juniper forward flavor, the ratios would change, but in my mind, it wouldn't be a martini. Mm-hmm. And how important, you know, someone with so much experience running a bar yourself then, even if you didn't have that on the menu, and I love that you do as well, because that's how I like to start a night. And if I go to a cocktail bar full of proprietary drinks, I feel like a bit of an asshole ordering a martini, but that's how I love to start the night. And I wonder how, how important is it, even if you don't have it on the menu, just to have a house spec so that when that situation arises, unless someone has their preferred way of it being served that everyone at your bar is making it consistently. And also, like you said, like you alluded to the ingredients that the ingredients work as well. I think it's incredibly important because if you open a bar, you're going to be making them, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, um, it's not something that's never going to get ordered. You know, it's the same thing as, you know, a Manhattan, you can Mm -hmm. leave it off your menu, but it's going to, you're going to be asked for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there should be a house spec because it's going to become part of your identity. Mm-hmm. So part of what, you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, I think initially you there's, there's two sides to every bar, right? They serve good drinks. They don't serve good drinks. Mm-hmm. And once they serve good drinks, that's going to be one that you're measured on whether or not it's on the menu or not. Um, if you have three different bartenders making it three different ways, yeah. Um, and somebody who knows about restaurants as intimately as you do know that consistency is of the utmost importance and people come yeah. back because they had a good experience. You know, mm-hmm. no one's showing up because, you know, the last time I came here, it was garbage. They might show up yeah. despite that, but they don't show up, you know, with that in mind. Yeah. So it's, it's incredibly important. In fact, my favorite uncle talks about his days bartending and, you know, I, I sort of cringe when he tells the stories um, from time to time. But he'd talk about, you know, he would make up a, uh, a, a pitcher of martinis and a, a pitcher of Manhattans and just, you know, shove them in the ice 
Um, and he was playing catch up. You know, he, these are usually, you know, the, like the good old restaurant war stories where mm-hmm. you know, somebody walked out or, you know, hurt their foot and he had to, you know, make drinks for 1500. Um, but I think, you know, at the very least, if he was making, you know, 10 gallons at a time, they'd all taste the same. Consistency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, at least they all taste the same. <laughs> hey, you know, every martini he served that night. I mean, they might have been consistently bad, but they all tasted the same, which is good. You got to be consistent. Yeah, they could have been dog water, but they were all dog water. <laughs> that's pretty good. And I would say that that's actually a better indication of a bar that I know what I'm going to get. If I go to a local bar, right, even if it's not a, you know, a place that specializes in cocktails, but if I know that their draft beer is lousy, I'll, I'll get a Modelo. Do you know what I mean? A little bottle of Modelo or whatever. But I don't want it to be great one day and then the next day the line's rubbish, the, the beer's got no head. I'm like, what is this? You know, if you know what you're getting, I think I think we'd like that as humans. So I think that's important here. Um and this was and that was the argument um, you know, for bar tools, mm-hmm. you know, twenty yeah. years ago. I would hire people and they go, you know, I, I can I can eyeball two ounces. I know how to pour an <laughs> ounce. You know, I don't want to use the jigger. What are you talking about? I had a guy doing my first training, this is 14 years ago, say, well, did you ever use a jigger? And I said, no. And I know the drinks weren't consistent. So we're going to do that here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think it's those those small incremental changes that all combine to, to really up the quality. And um, I want to talk about the specific ingredients here. because, And again, like this is the show's not about me, but I have a confession to make in that I got into martinis via the new Western style of gin, if you want to call it. I actually got into it through a Japanese gin that was very light and more citrus forward because I think for the longest time I'd been put off by the flavor of juniper. And that's a horror story going back to my kitchen days for a different time. But, you know, how do you feel about new Western gins versus the classic London dry. And of course, you're using Plymouth, which kind of, I, I would say, falls in between somewhat. Maybe it's a little bit more new Western, but what are you thinking about within those three different styles of gin? Um, yeah, I am, I'm always an advocate for, for progress and change. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that, you know, something is so sacred that it should never be um, you know, touched or, you know, messed with, or, you know, but there's nothing I think is sort of, um, above reproach when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. I think that not all, I mean, I don't think that, that all gins, regardless of, you know, where they're, where they're from and when they, you know, were founded are going to, you know, be the martini in my mind, the martini is the brands and proportions that we use at 116 crown. That's mm-hmm. it for me. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love I love again any sort of progress, um, and you know I'm not even that opposed to people calling it a martini if it's got a you know spicy green bean in it. You know if that's mm-hmm. the if that's the expression that you're looking to make, um, then you know good on you. I think that the newer Western gins are. Um, I am consistently sort of mesmerized when I see um, the expressions that people are putting on gin mm-hmm. and gin sort of lends itself to that as well. You know, as long as it's got some juniper, um, you know, anything else goes. And I think yeah. that that's a sort of like a really cool 
Um, it, it almost has a sort of nod to the culinary world, and I think you would agree on this, where sometimes it's hard to judge creativity because you don't know where the lines are. So it almost, it's nice to, call, you know, you say this is, this is a gin um, because it has juniper, but then we've done all these other things to it. So this is our expression of gin. And it's not something, um, you know, you could see it in like molecular gastronomy, you know, you mm-hmm. order like, you know, strip steak and you'd get, you know, a, a bowl of, you know, tapioca bubbles, but they were filled with gravy and sort of redolent of steak. And, you know, you could grin and, you know, understand the message and sometimes um, the comic message that the, that the chef was trying to get across. Mm-hmm. And I see that very much. Um, when it comes to the sort of newer expressions of gin. Um, Right. And so, you know, if you have something coming out of the East and it's featuring um, produce that's associated with the East, you go, Oh, okay. Right. Japanese gin. Got it. It's going to have that juniper. Um, And I, you know, I think Hendrix was really early to the party with this. And I say to people, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you've got three or four minutes in the afternoon to waste and you want to see a really, well-produced, likely extraordinarily expensive website, go to the Hendrix website because there's, you know, cucumbers getting launched out of cannons, roses are falling <laughs> from heaven. Um, and it's just cucumber rose, cucumber rose, you know, top hat, unicycle, cucumber rose, cucumber rose. But when you look at the bottle, there's no cucumbers and there's no roses. There's a sprig of juniper. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, um, you know, you have that history and, you know, in the case of Hendrix, you have playfulness. And then in the case of some Eastern gins, you have a more sense of place. Like I think St. George, their gin lineup um, oh, was always so cool, right? Yeah. Because they're like, oh, you know, what's this one? This is the one that grows outside the distillery. Enjoy yeah. that. You know, take a shot at that one. That's like, that's su- super cool. And, you know, and it's limited about, because, yeah. Talk about bringing terroir into spirits, right? You know, we talk about it in different forms and you can argue whether you can taste terroir in whiskeys that have been, you know, distilled using organic, you know, base of organic grain, but then aged in barrel for 10 years. But if you're saying, or or another great example, I would say is the botanist where they hire a full-time um, forager on their island who's going around all year picking ingredients for that gin. That's gin with a sense of place. You, you kind of argue against that. And I think that's, I think that's one of the incredible parts of, and, and it, to me, that informs what you're saying, right? You know where the line is. Okay, you can use new ingredients. You can use different ingredients, but you've always got to question why and do they work? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even in the, even in the case of, um, you know, the martini itself, I think, I think it was Franklin Roosevelt who was mixing the martinis himself and did not make his usual recipe, um, you know, poured it for, you know, some heads of state and, you know, presidents and secretaries of other countries and was so unwilling to admit that he made a mistake. Uh, henceforth, that's how they were served in the White House. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, who I'm- knows, you know, you get a, a, a deal on something. No one ever knows the true story. You know, is that, is that the terroir of, you know, like the botanist is a great example. Um, yeah. Right. That that's from the Island. You yeah. Know, St. George still, mm-hmm. you know, from the Island. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, they're great. And then the London dry ones, you know, you see, I mean, look at the ingredients on Bombay Sapphire. I mean, it's a London dry gin called Bombay. Yeah. So, you know, they were, 
obviously looking to, you know, get your head somewhere else and, you know, possibly, you know, celebrate, you know, some conquering and, you know, possible other things we probably wouldn't celebrate today. Yeah, it's there. Well put. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, again, you know, advancing the agenda is always in, in the favor of the medium. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have to advance the message to get uh, attention to the medium. And, you know, how many people want to drink the exact same, you know, gin that their grandparents drank unless they're thinking of their grandparents? Well, yeah. You know? And again, that that really brings us back to the, this the soul of the martini and it's it being this cocktail that you can personalize. You know, again, maybe there's different martinis for different times of days. If we if we move on from gin to vermouth, right? Again, it brings us back to that ratio conversation where I mean, I I personally think the 50-50 is a crime against the martini, but I know that it's very fashionable these days. And I can see a place for it, right? I can see a place where maybe you're using a vermouth that's more expressive than your classic styles that you might get from France or Italy. You, you know, we're talking dry vermouth here, but you know, I've tried I've tried newer ones or or smaller production ones that are more expressive. And I can see why you would probably want to mix that in a 50-50 martini, but I mean, yeah, what's what's your approach when it comes to obviously you want the harmony of the two ingredients, but the vermouth is the the supporting actor, right? And it's got to know its place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not shaking it, so we're giving it respect, but does it or I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe I just I, like straight gin. <laughs> I like it. Um, yes, it is it has to be it has to be, you know, um the supporting actor, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's no I mean that's why there's there's awards for supporting actors. They're, uh, they they oh, shouldn't man. be. Is that Jared Leto? Is that is that him or is he is he a main actor these days? But you know there's perennial supporters out there who just yeah do a great job. Yeah, I agree. And you know, unfortunately, um, you know vermouth vermouth is a beautiful thing. You know vermouth is you know wonderful with. A uh, sprig of celery at one thirty in the afternoon in somebody's garden, yeah. um, th- whose you know child you might be uh, involved with in meeting parents for the first time. You know, you mm-hmm. probably don't want to fire back. The, uh, <laughs> you don't want two martinis. <laughs> the, yeah, you know the, exactly the the, the double size vesper. Um, you know, and, and have have somebody's you know folks be calling you uh, uh, an Uber. So. It, I think just for, you know, sheer, you know, sort of, even if it's just assertiveness on the palate, alcohol uh, content, you know, vermouth should sort of be there um, to, to be, you know, help it, helping the gin uh, achieve its greatest expression, shall we say. Mm. So I was going to, I'm going to move us um, on to something after this, but in the, in the middle, I want to ask a quick yay or nay question, which is orange bitters. Um, again, I am in the yes business. You're in the yes for business me, for bears. Okay. It's a no. It's a no. It's a, oh, okay. Okay. I'm right. in the yes business, but that one for me is a no. Okay. <laughs> I, I, and I, again. I, it just seems it, it, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's... Um, it's 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 too much. Is that the chef? Yeah, the chef trying to 
have their imprint where it's not needed, go too far, let the produce shine. Uh, so I want to move on to, therefore, stirring, because there's a couple of things you mentioned before, which is the, the senses and engaging all the senses, not just when you're drinking, but when you're making this drink. And yes. I've been to places, one place I'll, I'll, I'll shout out, Maison Premier in New York, and they have a fantastic tableside martini service. And, and when they make it, they tell you the story of it as they're doing it. And it, it's a whole procession. And the person making the drink will talk about that they, pu- they pull their gin from the freezer and they stir it. And they're, they're not gauging by how cold the glass gets or how many revolutions. It's all by sight and viscosity. Is, is that something you subscribe to? And can you tell us a little bit more about what we should be looking for if that's the case in that scenario? I think that that is, I really like um, that sort of a presentation because it's so sort of deeply personal to that restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, unless you're going to a chain, you're sort of looking for an original point of view. And I mm-hmm. think them doing it that way, it might not be my way. Yeah. Is, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful way to do it. And I think, you know, just by the act of them forcing you to sort of put your pleasure in the hands of their senses, right? They're looking at this, they're judging by viscosity, they're, you know, they're, they're using their eyes. There's a, there's something that is, that is sort of like deeply caring in there. Yep. That, all restaurants should have, mm-hmm. all bars should have. And it's a really great way to get that point across um, without, you know, having to put it on the website. Mm-hmm. You know, we deeply care about you. If you if you walked in stone cold off the street, didn't know where you were and ordered that martini, you would come away, you know, feeling that. And it's also Blown quite away. brilliant blown away. And, you know, by using stories, I, um, will, I tell people this, I'm going to tell a whole podcast this right now. You know, you can, you can always argue good and bad, right. Mm -hmm. But that's opinion. Once you give something a story, once you, once you give it, um, a history, that's almost, it's, it's much harder to refute, Mm -hmm. right. You can always say, Hey, you know what? I just don't like martinis without orange bitters because I don't like them. Mm-hmm. But if I, you know, this is why you see, you know, so many restaurants who are using grandma's recipes and, yeah. um, you know, so many, you know, places that have this, you know, deep sense of purpose in place. And, you know, we have to carry it on um, because it's irrefutable. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 that, that's the story. If that's, a, if that's your grandmother's sauce, that's your grandmother's sauce. I wasn't there. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and that's something that comes up uh, or, or, and will come up a lot, I believe, in these conversations, which is just, you know, you got to have conviction. You, you got to have questioned why and have a reason for why you're doing something again. And the martini, I think maybe one of the reasons I do love it so much, it reminds me of cooking. And there's all these things that you're taught in the kitchen, right? Which is like, you should season mushrooms 
as you're sauteing them. But then other vegetables you should season afterwards because the salt's going to concentrate. And like all these little techniques that, I mean, scientifically, can we prove them? Absolutely not. But at least, you know, you're thinking about it and you have a reason for the way that you're doing whatever it is. And that comes back to that viscosity and, and, and the other things that you're talking about. And those are also nice little tip-offs too. You know, if, if you're, you know, I had a I had a, a chef friend tell me one time that one of the one of his tells for um, whether or not what what kind of kitchen he was in was uh, did they have soy sauce mm. and uh, where did they grab the handle of the spoon mm-hmm. right because the the metal spoon in the pot is hot at the top but cooler at the bottom mm-hmm. so you could have somebody come in with this dynamite resume and they're burning their hand um, when they try and stir the sauce, and he would just know right off the bat. So mm-hmm. if you're watching somebody saute mushrooms and season at the same time, um, there's it, 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 there's a sense of, I guess, reassurance that you know that they've, they've at least checked that box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then moving and- on to another one of these that might be, again, just one of these individual things. So I've, I've had someone tell me before... Um, well, I've got two to run by you. One is cracking the ice before you stir it. And the other one, someone's told me before that I should be stirring my gin over ice first and then adding vermouth to finish and stir so that we're not diluting the vermouth too much. Um, where do you stand on those two things? I think that it's a matter of your ice. I think, um, you know, now we're coming into this sort of uh, knowledge of environment Um you know, I have a, another chef friend of mine that keeps his risotto in the same place in the kitchen and it's not on the stove because he mm-hmm. just knows his kitchen so well and he knows exactly what he's going to get when he grabs from that risotto every mm-hmm. single time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're using, say, you're, you know, if you're using full cubes and, you know, the like, for instance, the, the bar at 116 is it's lit stone. And gosh, three or four years, four years ago, we replaced the lights from fluorescent to LED. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, we're, you know, the ice is melting much slower in the bin. And it was so strange. We're like, oh, God, the ice well, this, why is this lasting so much longer? Because it wasn't as hot, right? The LEDs aren't throwing any heat. Whereas, you know, and, we, and then they were able to dim them. That was the other thing, you know, things are looking different, um, you know, the, the area is changing different. So I think this is another, this is another place where you really just have to, you have to trust, um, the, the sort of methods that have been developed in the place that you are, which is why I would be reluctant to sort of go a full yes or um, hard no on either of those because so so much of that. I mean, we're talking about you know temperature and yeah. dilution, right? Is mm-hmm. your do you you know does your does does the does the shaking tin go under hot water right yeah. after you serve your drinks? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's going to change things as well. Uh, you know, if you're keeping your you know if you're keeping your gin in a freezer and it's going into you know, a hot tin or a cold tin, I think you got bigger problems to figure out than cracking the ice and adding the vermouth. Yeah. You know, and I think that there are also, you know, if I were going for a really, really dry martini, I would probably 
stir some of the gin over the ice, pour that out because that's going to be the the most um, watered down, and then start over. If I really just wanted that cold gin with, you know, in the yeah, you know, style of you know W. C. Fields, you know, glancing at the vermouth, yeah, then I I would I would want to go as far as I could in that direction. Mm-hmm. So obviously, um, you know, like you said, there, there's so many different variables there when it comes to ingredients and and things that you're, you know, your in- equipment temperature wise. But I think one thing we can all agree on is that the glass should be coming from the freezer. Do you still subscribe to the martini glass yourself or are we, are we talking coops, Nick and Nora? I mean, those, those glasses look great. They do look great. Um, and I do, I like a martini glass for a martini. Um, mm-hmm. I am not stuck on the, you know, very conventional, you know, V with no extra, um, you know, no sort of extra ornamentation. I have used martini glasses with like pronounced lips, mm-hmm. uh, which is always very much appreciated by the staff because it's a lot harder to spill them. Yeah. I've used them with a concave V, a convex V. And again, I think that that's a nice, um, you know, it's not, it's not different than, you know, sort of, uh, the conversation we're having about gin itself, whereas there are certain rules and, you know, you can't really, it's, it's harder to be, it's harder to be creative in an, in a way that's going to be understood by an audience if they don't have a touchstone, you know? Mm-hmm. So you get there, there is a, I think once, once, you know, you sort of understand that emoji shaped martini, mm-hmm. you know, the rest can just be, it can be more easily internalized. You know, I, I say this all the time to people about the restaurant, you know, is this the best drink I'm ever going to make? Absolutely not. But unfortunately, I have to sell them after I make them. Mm-hmm. So if I only made for me, then I'd only have one guest a night and it'd be me. Mm-hmm. So there has to be, you know, you have to be cognizant of of your audience as well. So if you're going to have a place that has a more sophisticated audience, um, you know, I think it's a little bit easier to get creative in that way. But when it comes to the martini going in a martini glass, uh, I think it's appropriate and appreciated. Now, mm-hmm. that being said, if somebody, and this happens from time to time at 116, when somebody wants a half a martini, then we put it in the Nick and Nora because it's mm-hmm. a, a so much nicer presentation than, you know, serving somebody, you know, a half drink. At that point, why don't we just serve it to them, you know, lukewarm, yep. you know, with, a, with a, <laughs> you know, bugs in it. Wondering if you have any any kind of final thoughts on this drink. I think we can definitely talk for longer about it. I know I could, but um, anything pertinent that we haven't covered uh, before I have one last question for you. Sorry, I'll have um, one last question after that. <laughs> sure. I think, you know, anytime I have these types of discussions, I always do like to temper it a bit with, What's really important is for the end user to be satisfied. So, you know, I could sit there and beat a drum and tell you this is the right way all day long. But if it just doesn't do it for you, it doesn't mean you should be, um, you know, you shouldn't be scared off or <laughs> right off the, the drink, you know, the whole, you know, just automatically. 
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the cool things about the martini is no matter um, how right I think I am, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's all up to your taste. So, you know, there are very few things that I don't, you know, out of hand like to eat and drink. Um, but, and I can't even think of any, but if they ever come across my plate, I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I, I've eaten and sipped my, my way through so many different um, genres and flavors. And again, there's not a lot that just doesn't do it for me, but you know, it, it really, it, if somebody tells you they don't like to eat fish, it's probably not the mountain you want to die on. So if, mm-hmm. if you can get a little bit of, you know, salmon dip onto their plate once in a while, you, you got to sort of be happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, especially with the martini, it's so nuanced. You know, my first martini order was done to impress the people I was with. You know, mm-hmm. I had never tasted it. I didn't know if I liked it. I ordered it completely wrong. Um, you know, I ordered it on the, the bartender who was not excited to make the martini asked, you know, do you want it up or on the rocks? And I didn't know what I was talking about. And I asked for it on the rocks. And when she gave it to me, <laughs> I said, no, no, no. Can I have it in the, in the, in the better looking glass? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a, I wanted to order that martini. And I think mm-hmm. it's a lot of the martini itself is in the glass. But a lot of the martini is also, it comes from somewhere else. And it's about, um, you know, I think a really great quote um, about the martini is James Carville, where he says, the ultimate feeling in the world is to be about two thirds of of the way through my second martini with people I like. Anything seems possible. Yeah. If you can get there, I don't care if you have orange bitters and are drinking it hanging from the ceiling by your feet. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. You know, that is really, that's what it is. And then you got, then you got to stop because you, you, you get this full way through the second one and not a lot is possible. It, it, it can be, but again, <laughs> you know, we're, what are, what are the proportions of these 50, 50? Cause I can well, probably have two more. <laughs> that, that, that very much is true. Um, so final question for you, you know, elephant in the room here you're you're up there in new haven serving and i'm happy to admit this that the finest martini i've ever had in my life which is why you're on the show today but i just want to make sure you guys up there you're not calling it fucking a martini are you a martini not even sure i've heard that well it's like a pizza never mind we can Uh (laughs) (laughs) we are not we are not doing that here we are not. We do have a beats, but we are not having a, a martini. Nope. A martini. Okay. No. Well, you can never just have a martini. Anyway, moving swiftly on. So it's been great to great to really explore this cocktail with you, John. I've I've loved the discussion. Um, yeah, could could even do another one on this, but really, I think right now I'd love to to sort of get to know you a little bit more for our listeners um, with with our kind of stock. Uh, quick fire questions at the end here that um yeah how's that sound sure great fantastic first question for you what's the first bottle brand or general category that makes it onto your bar program oh wow um geez that's tough uh can can i have a uh well uh, how about genre because it would be gin 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That it works. Would be gin. I, I think that, um, I love to work with gin just because, uh, it's got, it's got so much character mm-hmm. and it, there are so many ways to influence the character. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, terroir and, um, you know, I think, you know, whiskey is a beautiful thing. Um, but it much, you know, you're, you're giving it, it the expression is from the wood and you just have mm-hmm. so many more options with gin to give it that character. Yeah. Gin's the best. Um, gin's the best. Second, which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Oh, undervalued. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. Well, this is what I think, right? This is just uh, my opinion. Since we've been discussing the martini, um, I think it is the fine mesh strainer. Because if you are serving a drink up, which is to indicate without ice, I think that there should be no ice present at all. Yep. 100%. 100%. I hate shards of floating ice in the martini. That is a that is a no from me. Absolutely. I'll take the bill, please. <laughs> I notice you've charged me for that martini. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so next question. What's the uh what's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? Received. Uh, given out plenty by the sounds of it, but received. Yeah. I try not to give it anymore. Um, I think probably just be yourself, you know, be creative. There's only, you know, with the, not trying to sound too much like a Whitney Houston song, you know, that's, that's going to be the thing that's most easily deliverable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any, if you're out there and you have talent and you're, and you're dialing it back at all, um, not ill-advised be as far in the you direction as you can go because you're going to do that better than everybody else 100% of the time. Love it. And if you could only visit one bar in the rest of your life, which bar would that be? Uh, not mine. Not yours. Is that right? No, no, no I'm asking. Oh, it can't be yours. I was going to say. That uh, would be mine. It'd be it'd yours. Be mm-hmm. Yeah. Too much blood, sweat, and tears to go anywhere else. I love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it speaks to the whole third place conversation, but for you, maybe that's all three places. Um, final question for you. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, uh, what would you make or what would you order? Oh, it would be a martini. A hundred percent. All day long. Nope. Just, Just uh, the one I've been serving. The one you've been saying. I think it, it's perfection. And if I was going to have one more drink, it would have to be a martini. <laughs> At least you'd feel somewhat happy to go, I think. I agree. Amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us for, for today's episode. It's been a blast. My pleasure. Very much my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And look forward to the next time. Let's do it. Okay. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. 
Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Fine Pairs Tastings Director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vine Pair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at Vine Pair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>